0: welcome back to real voices of the game i'm dave dagostino and i'm joined by my co-host and star of this show sal marinello this is the hot corner with coach sal episode 231 on the network just want to give a quick thanks to our fan base here. We're up to 20,800 subscribers without Spotify today. And we're supposed to get those numbers later today. So we're excited about that. We I think our numbers will double, Sal. Um, so we're Great. involved with some very exciting things with the network. We're starting to reach that level of sponsorship. And we'll still try to keep you ad-free here so we can keep it about content. But 72 countries have been loyal, grassroots MLB front offices. We're just trying to build a better baseball IQ, better... Sports IQ, Better Life IQ out here. and Sal, welcome back to your show.
1: Hey, Dave. Great to be here. Early in the week for us, but we missed last week, so uh, it's good. I'm glad to be back.
0: Yeah, I was traveling. We've had back-to-back national championship tournaments with our baseball group and our basketball group and um, some fun times. Very exhausted um, because I'm involved with every single team, but uh, had some really good showings uh, with both sports. We're proud of the kids and our best team showing our 15U basketball group with the boys finished uh, number three in the country. They, uh, they We knocked off the number one team in uh, the Elite Eight, I think it was, and and uh, we ended up being ranked third, and we had them playing up in the 16U division, so they played up a division, finished third, so we're, we're proud of them. All the other teams had great showings. My younger son, Tanner, finished number one in the, the tournament in scoring, um, which was, was uh, not, not the end-all, be-all, but kind Of neat when they announced him and they show him he's a he's a uh, he's he, let's just say he's not a specimen yet.
1: We'll keep it keep well, that's it good, that, you know, that's good. Good, those outstanding performances are important regardless, so uh,
0: that's great. Yeah, and then uh, baseball kids did great. Uh, played in the college division, which is all kids getting ready to go to college next year. So, in, in August, I should say, not next year. And we went to battle with uh, two, two seventh graders, five eighth graders, uh, four ninth graders, and then our New Zealanders came over and showed very well. Uh, we had a we had an array of ACC and SEC coaches sitting sideline watching them, and uh, they did very well. They're at Duke camp right now under the tutelage of Coach Pollard, uh, getting some elite camp instruction. So hopefully these guys will, when they hit the plane back home, they'll be going home with multiple offers.
1: You know, Dave, as a youth coach, I had several occasions where we had some real dominant athletes and, um, there was pressure to have these guys play up, and in a couple of cases, it was there were my kids, and I, I've I've always been kind of reticent to do that. I never was a big fan of playing up. I felt, for the most part, especially when you're talking about, uh, and and again, I'm not talking about a team going in that you think you've got a great group and having them go into a situation. I'm talking about a individual. Going into a into a team and playing, you know, up as, as a younger kid. And I kind of was hesitant to do that. I think kids need the opportunity to dominate. If they're that good, they need at least one season to really dominate and know what it's like to be the better kid or the best kid out there. And there's a, a whole level of confidence that comes. I have seen kids who were who were gifted kids. Who played up all the time and early and I in my opinion never really reached their potential I think in, in many cases there's the mental component that's missing uh, and the physical component is there I, I just think that's uh, an important thing to keep in mind for parents who have kids that may be in a position to, to, to play up so to speak uh, it's yep. okay but I think it, the time has to be right. I think the situation has to be right. In my case, there were a couple of the times with my kids and another player that were in seventh grade and they wanted on the eighth grade team and the eighth grade team wasn't good. And in my opinion, the seventh graders would have struggled because they didn't have a good supporting cast that would have allowed them to to do what they were good at. And they would have struggled in in, in a football setting, which uh, I think is, is it's it's tough for a younger kid to do. And I, I'm glad I did that because the athletes that I held back wound up having a great season and then went on and did great things in high school. So I I don't think playing up is the end all be all as an individual in these situations. That's just uh, my two cents.
0: I agree with you. I think it it can't be car blanc. Not every kid, every team, even every situation. Uh, stands for that. Uh, this particular one with us, it was the right timing for it, the right kids, um, the right setting. And, um, and as, as you mentioned, for instance, like with my son Tanner, this is the first tournament that he played at his age group this, this uh, basketball season. He's been playing up on our 10th grade team as a backup point guard. And I felt just like you mentioned, uh, I mean, he couldn't hit it on the head more squarely. I felt this was the right time for him to get back to his age group, even though he was still playing up a little bit. He's a seventh grader. He was playing in the eighth grade division. Um, it's still his age bracket as far as I'm concerned. And he, uh, he got a chance to feel what it was like to be the go-to guy again. And uh, I agree. I think, they, I think the more roles they understand early in life, um, as long as they're able to handle it socially and emotionally and, and physically, the better equipped they're going to become later on. Because, you know, like when you go to college and play, you've got boys that are playing college. Um, You know, and I went, same thing. Everybody's a star when you get there. And you've got to learn how to be different things to different teams. So I couldn't agree more. I think it's – but you know what the issue nowadays is? There's more kids playing down
1: than playing – I I was just going to say that. Well, The good thing about what you're doing in the summer with these teams is a team can go into a tournament and play up you know you you don't you're not selling out for a whole season of a kid playing up and then right. if it's not working out you're kind of stuck whereas when you have a group say of 7th graders and you know you have a loaded group and you want to challenge them and sometimes you know I've known coaches who've done that to kind of humble their kids a little bit you could take that team of hot shots put them in against some 8th graders in a tournament and they learn a valuable lesson and then it gives them some perspective And I think it helps them, again, toe the line. I think that's why these summer tournaments can be great. You can pick your spots and say, hey, we're going to challenge this group at this tournament. And then we're going to come back and play with elite teams or the higher level teams of our own age bracket. So I think there's uh, something to be said for that. And your point about playing down, it's ridiculous, Dave. There there are circumstances every year I hear where kids are reclassing. From a, see in New Jersey, you can't reclass once you go into the high, once you go into ninth grade. So what kids do, even if you're in a private school and you're part of what's called the NJSIAA, which is the governing body of sports in uh, high school sports in New Jersey, even if you're a private school, but you're in the NJSIAA bracket, so to speak, and you you compete with certain public school teams at like county level tournaments. Not necessarily in the, in the state tournaments, but in county level and regular season, these teams can play. But you can't be in a private school and reclass. You have to leave and go to your traditional boarding schools. So what are happening is these teams, these, I'm sorry, these kids who have made the team say they were a junior. They were going to be a junior and they're reclassing and they're going to go back and, and redo their sophomore year. They're going back and playing on the younger summer team. And when they already made the team and they're already old enough to play with the older kids, they're going back and playing down, which from what I understand from coaches at the college level, they understand that dodge and they don't look positively on that. So a word to wise a word to the wise is sufficient, as one of my old grammar school teachers used to say.
0: Yeah. And and this is all it's all driven by adults and parents. They they're more concerned with. You know, and, and as I said, I sat with, the, we played in a U.S. Basketball Association national final. So it's, there was like seven others played during that time, but there's really only one national championship. And so I sat down with the directors and Bobby Cremens, if you remember him, Georgia Tech coach, he's, he's affiliated with the group. And they were talking about how there's an eight, there's an 18 month um, swing where somebody could actually be 18 months older than the age bracket and still be eligible, kind of like what you're describing to play. For instance, we we play with with our middle school team. There was a six foot four and a half seventh grader dunking, and uh, that's not normal. I think he drove there too, to be honest. But um, ah. you know, th- these are it's. But then they're also reclassifying down. So now you're talking about a thirty-six month difference in age. When you're dealing with thirteen year olds. That's a huge difference. And Ridiculous. as they get older, it evens out. I mean, our fifteen U team. Played up, um, and uh, they believe honestly that they they could win it. That the teams that the team that beat us ended up winning the national championship, and um, they just felt they felt we we're, were that close. And my younger my older son is on that team. Uh, he he plays comes off the bench as a shooting guard for us. He's six foot, but he's an eighth grader going into ninth, so he's on that team as well. And Tanner usually is on that team uh, as a seventh grader, but he uh, we we needed him with the junior high, and again it was that experience of. Hey, let's let's feel what it's like to be here. Is the nation's best? Let's see where you stand. And I think he averaged like sixteen and thirteen from the from the guard spot for the tournament. So um, good showing, but yeah, these the summertime is like the wild west, and there really are no rules. And I think I am the only one that travels with birth certificates and proof of grade for my kids. And uh, if you ever saw our teams walk out there, they'll be like, "What, what does this guy do? Malnourish his kids?" And like, no, they're just that's what twelve year olds look like, and thirteen year olds, and fifteen year olds. So. But uh, anyway, and our girls did well too. Um, real good showing. So I was happy with it. But yeah, I, I, I don't know what to do with all that stuff. I, there's got to be a way to fix it, kind of like we're trying to fix everything else with sports. But uh, people are making too much money hand over fist. They don't want to disrupt the apple cart. And they just kind of shrug their shoulders and move on.
1: Yeah, the, the parents are going to have to start taking some control. I had a discussion with a couple of parents of lacrosse kids Telling them basically they need to play this club game, but at the same time take control of what their kids want and take them to be uh, take them to schools they might be interested in for camps and prospect days, and and try to find where your kid wants to go. Not being reliant or dependent on these coaches at the club and their agenda in sending kids to where it works for the club and not necessarily for the kids. So. Yeah. I think parents have to remember their role. We've seen stories of this both in the educational system happening, and I think it has to happen on the athletic side. They really don't realize how much influence and say they really should have and obviously do have in the process. So
0: Yeah, it's not brain surgery. It's just I explain to people. They always ask about, you know, how do you know about the recruiting? I spent, you know, my life doing this stuff, and – all I am is just a dad that's had some different experiences, but it's not brain surgery. And I'm a firm believer that it's, it's how we run our sports programs and our recruiting is I want the parents to be the first educator of their kid in all settings, um, because no matter how much I love the kids that we work with and that I coach and whatnot, and same with you, Sal, you love your you know guys that come in, guys and girls that come in and work out. And I go to bed and wake up every morning thinking about my four kids, just like every mom and dad does. So in my mind, the parents got to be the first educator. They're the only one going to bed at night and waking up thinking about their kid um, in that, you know, with that type of intensity. So you're right. They've got to take ownership over and uh, and really drive the ship with their kid. Without a doubt. Well, speaking of kid, um, you hit me with this before the show. I didn't even see it. I think it's worth noting and discussing because we've hit on a lot of this stuff with um, pharmaceuticals, vaccines, health of athletes. Seemingly big-time healthy athletes just, you know, unfortunately dropping. Um We had Bronny James had an issue just today or yesterday. He had a
1: heart attack. 18-year-old, he, uh, prime of his life, athletic, stud, playing, uh, I believe he's at USC, <clears throat> had a heart attack during practice, was rushed to the ICU and is recovering. Uh That doesn't happen, Dave. I don't re- – I can't recall how many times we've heard stories in the last couple of years about these young athletes being in dire physical condition from heart issues and blood clots. But uh, it's it's a scary thing, and people are continuing to put their head in the sand and ignoring the 800-pound gorilla in the room. There's a mixed, uh, mixed metaphor there.
0: Yeah, I can't even – I can't imagine – a guy that cares for his body as much as LeBron James does with the things he does in between games, even the loading that he does where he takes games off, to put something unknown like that in his body, in his kid's body. But, I mean, how else? What, what's another explanation for a seemingly, you know, in the prime of his life, his health life, 18-year-old boy dropping with a heart attack?
1: It's, excuse me, it's scary. The first thing, obviously, we think now, and people who are aware of what's going on, is that it's the vaccine. You know, LeBron does not have a necessarily heavily pro-vaccine stance. He was kind of coy about his status for a while. but you know, he said he, you know, he felt like it was, it was best suited for not only me, but my family. That's a quote of his in a a news story. So, and it's, and you know what, I I feel, I'm not a fan of his, but I feel for him. Um, He, he says that he got the vaccine despite initial skepticism, but that he felt it was best for him and his family. I would hate to think that it was the vaccine, but again, it's hard not to. And, to, to feel what he must feel as we just spoke about how parents feel about their kids and they're concerned about their well-being more than anybody to, to think that this decision he made was responsible for his son's problem uh, would be hard to bear. But you, at the end of the day, if you buckle to the pressure and you do it despite what you think is best, I, Dave, I, I cannot tell you the people that I know that I would in a million years never would have thought would have Succumbed to the pressure and did so for me, basically meaningless reasons like going on a cruise and taking trips and taking flights and just stuff that's so inconsequential in the scheme of things that scares me a- and it's unfortunate, but it's it it's the reality that uh, people bought the bill of goods and um again it, it you know he LeBron himself said he only felt comfortable about speaking about his and his family's choices and that he was saying all the right things. Um, So it it would really be terrible, again, for him to have that on his head, to think he made the call that somehow was responsible for this.
0: Yeah, and according to reports, it happened with 911 call yesterday morning, 926 a.m. That's West Coast time um, practice at USC's facility this is the second USC player in as many years that suffered cardiac arrest in, in an offseason workout. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame. And, 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 and you know, no- the
1: NBA should be blamed and the team should be blamed because there was pressure. They, they couldn't. The, the union, which tells you something, the union would not uh, allow for a mandate. Uh, they, the stats they quoted, 90 percent of the NBA players have been vaccinated. I would question that, uh, how many have actually gotten yeah. vaccinated. We've talked about that. People that we know that deal with athletes at that level have said the number's probably half of what's reported. Uh, but these these people who are actually promoting it, the, the Lakers coach at the time, Frank Vogel, said that his team was 100% vaccinated and that he was proud of his players. That's... That's the kind of idiot that should be held up to scorn and derision in response to these physical problems. You know, not LeBron for as much as you, you might not love what he has done and said in his career and how you feel about him as a player. He was unfortunate in that he bowed to the pressure. So you, you kind of get an idea for what must have been going on internally. And the league and the teams made it very difficult for players who didn't want to be vaccinated. As did other leagues that didn't make it mandatory. So the leagues leagues are to be blamed. And again, knowing how easy it was to beat the system and and claim you got vaccinated, it's shocking to me that more people, um, more people didn't do that.
0: Yeah. coaches were fired at the college level for not enforcing it Um, or mandating, and they prevented teams from playing in. It basically told them when we got to the football bowl season that all those teams had to be vaccinated in order to participate in bowls. That's big money for universities. So there was a lot of pressure on these kids to do it. And they used the immediate people leading them, uh, which is their coaches. And the NBA did the same thing. It, I mean, they were holding – the, the kid, uh, was it Jonathan Isaac? Um, they basically pushed him out of the league for standing up against it and, uh, and basically his right to put what he wants in his body. So well, yeah, I, 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 I agree.
1: And at the end of the day, it's almost like the trans issue. Until the people who have been victimized by the vaccine speak up and speak out against it, I can't get to I can't get more wor- worked up about it than the person who had someone die from it.
0: Yeah, so it's their fight,
1: it's their fight or 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 get you know they call this vax injure. They've been calling people vax. I'm sorry, Vax injured. I think they should be called Vax ruined because injury you can recover from. A lot of what the side effects are and a lot of what these negative outcomes are are ruinous they, that you're not recovering from. So I think that the language needs to be a little bit more specific here. I think the term is Vax ruined and until those people speak out just like until more women speak out against the travesty of allowing a uh, biological male to compete in a female activity and occupy a female space in the locker room and and ladies room men can support that the, these women but the women have to be on the front line these vax ruined people these vax people who die- who died from it need to be the ones at the forefront.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't, I agree with you totally on that. I, you and I have banged the drum on it and we always have to remind ourselves, you know, unless the people who've been harmed by it fight their own fight, there's not much more we can do um, in terms of emotion. Anyway, let's get into some training now. We've been teasing the audience for two weeks on this stuff. Um, I told you my story of, of uh, wearing ankle weights when I was a kid, my uncle, my dad, they swore by him, jump rope. You'll, you'll, you'll leap out of the gym. So I was uh, one of those kids that walked around with ankle weights on. But uh, distal and proximal loading, define um, to, to, to those for the audience and you can take it e- either way you go.
1: Well, so a great example of distal loading is the ankle weight. <clears throat> you are trying to affect the muscles that are responsible for jumping and speed and for let's not even get into the specificity of the activity by putting those ankle weights on you're, you're not being specific and your activity becomes, you, you become slower at your activity. Um, you're also now at a distance from those areas you need to, you want to affect. And the, that weight is just hanging off your, your bottom of your leg. It's not in a position that in any way could be viewed as advantageous. Because of the nature of that ankle weight, it's pulling on your knee, it's pulling on your hip, it's screwing up your alignment, it's screwing up your back, it's changing your gait, it's changing your mechanics. And in a way, that doesn't translate or transfer to your activity, to your endeavor. So the ankle weight was a classic assumption based on the wrong information that somehow that that's going to help you. So over time, you're going to get tendonitis in your knee, tendinitis in your shin. You're going to have ankle issues and hip problems, and you will never could figure out why. And it's because this weight is hanging off your leg. It's similar to back in the day in the 80s and the aerobics era. They had heavy hands and people would hold these dumbbells and go walking with them. And have all kinds of issues with their grip and with their forearms and tennis elbow-like symptoms. And it just doesn't work because, again, you're, you're holding that weight and your musculature at some point can't bear properly the stress of that repetitive movement. And it transfers the stress to the connective tissue. So your ligaments and tendons and joints kind of pay the price.
0: Yeah. And I, and I was one that did that. I, I did the, the ankle weights. I joked with the two weeks ago with the story. I fell asleep with them on one time and woke up with a bloody nose. So don't ever do that if you wear the ankle weights, but it's, it's, it was hard to judge. It's one of those things you, you kind of trial and error. You see, you know, I, I'm not quite sure if it did anything for me other than it's what, uh, it's what my, my dad and uncle had me doing. We jumped, I jumped roping it. Uh, sometimes I shot in them. Sometimes I would just wore them walking around, but there's a lot of those things out there um, that, you know, like you said, with the hand weights, I think I'm living in the 80s. I see the I see the over 75 crowd. We're using the hand weights still down here. Well, so
1: and, and so what would I take that to a next level in training? So really, distal loading is also barbells and dumbbells. There's yeah. obvious that's distally loaded. You're trying to affect your 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 your, your overall body. In a way, and especially the work I do, which is what I call explosive coordination. Some people like to use the term Olympic lifts, but that still is a kind of different end product, a different goal of what I do when I train my athletes. So, uh, distal loading isn't always bad. It's just probably, you could say, appropriate versus inappropriate. But my thought is started to veer towards why always are we adding more weight distally, when it should be proximally now to define the proximally, we've done it before, but for people who haven't listened or heard or listened to it, proximal loading would be a weight vest, right? We're trying to do things that kind of are going to benefit you in your athletic endeavor and your activity. So by wearing that weight vest, you're wearing that on your trunk. And that's really, when you think about it, if you could add the weight to that area, that's a better mechanical, if you want to talk about uh, a very general term, that's a mechanical advantage over the distal loading, especially for athletes that really, which are most of the athletes, really don't need to worry about how much they're lifting. To be honest with you, one of the other big myths in, in the in the field is this concept of periodization, which the periodization is you st- the oversimplified definition is: you start light, higher rate, higher reps. I'm sorry, lightweight, higher reps, and you transition into heavier weight, lower reps, and that's quote how you build strength. So the theory is you go through this whether it's an eight week, a ten week, or a twelve week, week phase, and you're increasing your weight, and then you would either be in competition or go into a phase where you're down, you you down downshift and train lower and then you go back into another phase of periodization to me it's a waste of time and it doesn't really apply in the modern era of our athletes who are basically almost in season all year round and it makes no sense to me that if you well there's two there's two things that make no sense it's this never-ending upward progression of adding weight which to me is not possible after a certain point you can't add weight, add infinitum to get to a point. Everyone has their ceiling. So the idea is if you're training properly and you're training with proper movements, not these deadlift, bench press, back squats that don't help athleticism, you could get to a point and maintain that within a a range of responsibility during your in-season and out-of-season phases. So the weight vest, I think, is a way that you could change the load and really give the body a new kind of stimulus without worrying about adding weight to a, a dumbbell or a barbell, which inevitably leads to other issues with elbows, shoulders, knees, back,
0: hips. That makes sense because as you're saying that I'm, I'm just kind of looking at my body with things that I've used that go further away from the core where I'm, you should be the strongest. And you're right, it p- places undue stress on ligaments, tendons, uh, where you can't be totally stable with it when you're, you know, putting ankle weights on or hand weights on. Although, are there positives? Are there things that you can do positively with, um, you know, with, with that type of loading, with dis- distal loading?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think when you look at how some people are starting to train where they're not emphasizing these heavy lifts, these heavy weights, in these power lifts, and these slow movements, again, you have the deadlift, squat, bench press, traditional weight room stuff, which is slow non-nervous system movements. So if you look at all movement, and as I say to people and coaches, you don't really have to know much, but you can kind of, if you're a good coach, look at something and say, we, we talk about this all the time, Dave, you watch these athletes do stuff in the weight room. And my, my answer or my question to you guys is, does that look like baseball? Does that look like a, a baseball or any kind of athletic a- activity, and if the or does it display some type of athleticism you know there's that there's that concept of cross training where there's nothing better in my opinion for a, an athlete that plays one sport than to play another sport, especially if there's similarities a soccer player who plays basketball or a lacrosse player who plays basketball or a football player who wrestles who also does track and field one of the big i think one of the big problems we have today is track and field as a sport has really got gotten lost in the shuffle with the advent of lacrosse coming on in the spring especially in new jersey i'm you know i'm sure this is the same other places but track is a spring sport in new jersey there's winter track but that's not the same and so is baseball and lacrosse. So you have a whole group of athletes, both male and female who are missing out on some of the very important fundamentals that can be instilled during track practice that you're not you're not getting. And I know up until I got to ninth grade, our school system here had a great track and field program which most kids were exposed to through their phys ed classes. And even they couldn't compete. Back when I was in school, Dave, the junior high was seven, eight, and nine. You couldn't compete in baseball. We didn't have lacrosse. You couldn't compete in baseball and track. But our phys ed program was basically track competition for athletes who played baseball and who didn't do track, but did other sports and maybe didn't want to commit to track. That was a way they could kind of, A, get you into that instructional environment and B try to get you to like the sport and hopefully go out for it if you weren't playing another sport in the spring so that that's one of the big things that we've missed but that there is that concept of cross training and doing things outside of the narrow focus of your sport that's still athletic
0: yeah and i think we heard uh, we heard scott Rowland this weekend talk about that a little bit in his hall of fame speech he was a baseball basketball tennis player Tennis, I like with, with baseball as well. But um, you've turned me on the track more ever since our first episode where you talked about uh, just the mechanics of running properly, the, where, where your core philosophy comes with uh, just as you've trained the athletes that I've sent your way and you do all of them, you get back to the basics on teaching them the proper mechanics to run their body position, their foot strikes, their gape. And, um, it's turned me on to the point. We actually have a young man in our program, two, two young boys in our program. And the two older sisters have been with us. The eldest sister of the Arnold family, Maymay, she's been a devoted track athlete her whole life. She's actually at Texas A&M right now running and she won two gold medals this past weekend, uh, US, U.S. world championships under 23. And her dad and I, her dad is with our program. And, we talked about getting our our athletes into exactly what she's done because she can play anything she wants. I mean how she she moves. But um I'm interested in doing that with my four kids this year, based on your initial conversations and then paying it's like anything else. You you know, you, you start hearing it enough, you start paying attention to it more out there. And I I, I believe wholeheartedly. I mean, it, it gets right back down to the basics. That's that's what my philosophy's always been about. And you uh you brought me back to that this year. So we are going to do that in our offseason this year with our four kids.
1: And, you know, you don't need to turn kids into track athletes. When I start with my – I'll use lacrosse as, as an example because it's my most prevalent athlete at this point. But I would do the same whether it was one of your basketball players, or one of your baseball players. You take them through the basics that you would do with a – track sprinter because those are still the fundamentals of the movement that that sets up we've discussed this in other shows but the sprint technique sets up all other less intense fundamental patterns so whether you're a basketball player whether you're a baseball player lacrosse player whatever if you sprint better, all your other movements are going to be better. So we start at that very basic level of these fundamental drills and fundamentals of sprinting. But then quickly, we, I transfer them into other areas that are more specific to their endeavors. So for instance, I do a lot of nonlinear sprinting with my lacrosse players early. And nonlinear sprinting is you stop, I, I don't spend a lot of time sprinting in a straight line. I do a lot of work in a serpentine fashion where I teach players how to cut without slowing down and without having to always cut off of their outside foot, which is a power cut. But when they do power cut, they do can do so without slowing down. So those are the things that start to kind of early on in the process, differentiate what a track kid is going to work on versus what a, a field sport, court sport athlete could work on.
0: I got a question for you. You know, you talked about the power cut with the outside foot. We were, we're working on that a little bit, but that, that's a good phrase for it. What's the alternative with the inside foot? Is there an inside foot cut? Or well, that's a-
1: called the speed cut. So I have this drill that I call the veer and steer. So if you can visualize, I know it's a radio program, so it's kind of hard but try to visualize this, the, uh, a yard line that goes from sideline to sideline or the sideline itself, right, you have that long white line. And what I do is I set cones up for beginners. So the cone is on the outside of the yard line at the start and then is on the other side of the yard line three yards down and is an, back on the other side five yards down and then back to the other side seven back to the other side, nine. And then depending on the athlete, I I shorten that last distance. So basically you're looking at the yard line with the cone on either side of the line, alternating down. And from that, I do my veer and steer, which is teaching the athlete that I don't care which foot you are cutting off of, but you're not slowing down and you're not changing your stride so you can cut off of your outside foot. See, that's one of those things, Dave. That's one of those drills that forces the athlete and that forces their body to figure out the movement. And over time, without me coaching the minute points of put your foot here, let your arms do this, put your head there, <clears throat> the fundamentals that we've worked on in the, in the early part of this sets them up so that they can learn how to run that drill and basically be more efficient at it.
0: I like that. And, do, you, do you have any of that on Instagram?
1: I have not put that on Instagram, but I I can do that. I have some, some video on it, but it's, it's one of the, I think one of the most interesting drills with a group of athletes that you think are very fluid and able to run well. And then you set that, you could set, I set that up two ways. I set that up three, five, seven, nine, where you're giving them a chance kind of as they get faster with a quicker stride, they're in a position where they have to learn how to control their body. And actually, Dave, the, we've talked about this. Running is a top-down endeavor. So it's posture, arm, shoulder crank, foot under your hip, and then it's cadence is the fourth piece of the puzzle. But when we work on posture and arm crank, when a kid runs with proper uh, shoulder uh, shoulder crank, I call it, which is the, actually how your shoulders work during the sprint when your posture is good and your shoulders are in the right position and you can control it athletes can run that course very well you'll see athletes that do not control their bodies that don't have good posture that aren't confident in their stability and in their excuse me in their strength their arms start to flail and they get very far from the cone so i'd set that distances and then i go five 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 and five so you have every five yards so they can kind of fall into a different pattern but they have to be able to negotiate the course in the same way so a big part of what i do is also trying to keep people off of their heels when they sprint and that drill also will point out where you've got a lot of flat-footed runners and it kind of helps to correct that by just the nature of the drill
0: and give the guy's name to our audience, the one who's kind of started this for you was Franz. Well, his um, name
1: is Franz Bosch. His, his, his concept is that, and I, he was a guy I came about after I kind of had these general ideas about how I should train. And he obviously was way ahead of the curve and put into a much more technical, technical and structured format a lot of the stuff that I was already doing, and then takes it just beyond. So Franz Bosch, he's he's Belgian. He works with jumpers, sprinters, and I believe he still works with the Belgian national baseball team. So he he, he came up with this phrase of, uh, or the concept that sprinting sets up how you're going to do all your other
0: uh, agilities. No, I, I think that's, that's great with it, and, and we kind we kind of wanted to take our our next step with training. I know you wanted to talk about, you know, people stretching. Um, to me, to me, stretching without strength is is uh, useless. I like the word mobility better. But you had a way you thought with with certain pressure points as opposed to overstretching areas may be the way to for people to gain more mobility and flexibility. If you want to go yeah. back and touch more on what you said, but if you want to move forward, that's that's something we had chatted about.
1: Yeah, no, there's the concept of these trigger points, pressure points, trigger points that you'll have a knot. You know, people will say, I have this tight spot in my calf and I have a knot in my glute or my hip, or they feel tightness in their hip. And I use a field hockey ball as the kind of diagnostic for that, where you have someone, you know, sit in an upright position on the ground and put the field hockey ball under their calf until they find that spot and people don't understand that's there until they use that ball and they find the spot and it the light goes off it's like holy cow i never realized that was there so that knot is responsible for tightness usually at least in a large section of that muscle so if we could attack those knots that will go a long way to improving your mobility, flexibility, stability. So that knot is what it's doing is it's, it's contracting so everything is tight. If we could release that one knot, and if you have other lesser knots, sometimes they could also dissipate as a result of that major knot being alleviated. But there's a lot of muscles in your body that don't necessarily respond to the classic static stretch where you have a a two sides of the two ends of the muscle and you're doing things to lengthen that muscle to stretch it out hamstring is a great one people stretch their hamstrings all the time you hear how many times dave do we hear about these baseball players with hamstring issues and they all they do and back issues and all they do is stretch their back and hamstrings well it's usually not those muscles that are tight there's other stuff going on there are these trigger points in my opinion that are in the glute area in the hip flexor area in your in your different muscles of your of your thighs the four muscles of your thighs the quads is they're commonly referred to people i have on the ball with their quads or in the different muscles of their thighs and they jump through the roof they don't realize what those knots are doing to restrict movement so I, uh, you know, you don't even need to have a book or a guideline, get a field hockey ball, a lacrosse ball, even a baseball, get down on the ground with it, lie flat, put it under your glute and move it about until you find that when you put your weight on it, you feel like you found that spot and try to slowly, but surely apply more pressure to the ball, let more of your body weight sink over that and have that relax that area, release that area. It's, it's amazing. I do that with people with my athletes. A lot of the times they come in for their initial evaluation. And at the end, I have them go through my little routine with the so which is a, a device that's used to stretch the psoas. We'll talk about that if you want, come back to that. Uh, psoas, which is a muscle in the front that connects your upper body to your lower body. It kind of runs down about you know five inches on either side of your navel, runs down from your um, from your your lower spine to your upper um, uh, pelvis, and that can uh, and your leg and it connects the upper to the lower. I stretch that. I'll do the calf stretch, and do the hip flexor stretch, or I'm sorry, trigger point work with the ball on the calves, on the hip flexors, and the sole right, which is on the front, and then have someone stand up and they can then touch their toes where they couldn't before we haven't done anything really from a traditional stretch standpoint, because people think my back is tight. I have to stretch my back. Sometimes your back is tight. You have to stretch your front. And I'm using those back and front in quotes.
0: I like it. I I'm a firm believer of what you're talking about. I, I use a golf ball to roll my feet out to start every day. And yeah,
1: that's that the feet are great. Uh, as you've progressed, you, you can progress to a larger ball, but the golf ball is a great place to start too. It's yep, for different nice. things. I actually have a softball that I use on certain sections on my lower lats. Your lats connect way down on your rib cage, and you would believe you would not believe how tight those can be and how much that can restrict you. So I have a softball, a field hockey ball that I use, uh, and a golf ball I'll use to also if something's really like targeted.
0: Yeah. I uh, and, and you'll have to I, the transverse abdominis to me is the the biggest issue because I get tight hips from the baseball days of overusing the hips, and probably running improperly at times, and probably using the the distal weights uh, messing up my posture and whatnot. But I will put and you'll have to tell me what the the technical term is for. But from the hip to the groin, what's that 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 uh, tendon called that goes across there?
1: Is that the uh, hip well, do you have a bunch? There's a bunch of, of I, I think what, what people assume is your groin. Uh, a lot of the times it's your hips, your hip is off and you, that can be from your, I think it's your psoas. Your psoas is a powerful muscle right you have the psoas, which goes again from your upper body to your lower body you have the iliacus which basically sits in if you were to you know put your thumb right along your waistline where you have that hip bone your iliacus sits in there you have you know you have a couple of adductors there there's there's three actually not two there's the well there's four but there's the brevis longus and magnus so they it's the short medium and long that go From your upper, uh, from your pelvis down into your into your femur there, and you have the pectinus, which is also the top one, and then you have the gracilis, which is way down. But most people have that. I think it's the bre uh, it's it's the brevis, which is the 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 shortest one, which because that goes kind of where people always show me with their hand, which is kind of like midway up their thigh. But I still think that's a symptom. I think. If you look at your hip your hips as if anyone has seen a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge those two stone towers are your hips and the cables and the roadway hang from those those towers that's how you have to look at your hips so if your hips are off those cables are going to be off and you're going to have obvious obviously a chain reaction of issues, whether it's tightness, whether it's a pull. That's where I think you get these chronic hamstring groin problems because the hips are off and the hips are off for a variety of reasons, a variety of reasons we could go into in another show. But until that structure, those towers, those hips are straight, you're always going to have an issue with those areas being tight. And again, I think those areas are tight Because that's the symptom. It's like when I get a young kid that has knee pain and has not done anything of a nature where they got rolled up on, they got tackled, they got twisted, their knee hurts from doing a basic lunge, their knee hurts from doing some rotational work. Well, it's because something along the chain there doesn't move the way it's supposed to, and the knee gets the brunt of it. So that was a long-winded explanation, but there's never never one muscle that's the, the culprit, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Well, I got two questions for you based on that. One one is, so each, my biggest issue is my hips, but I agree with you. You got to work the front and the back. I use your technique with a lacrosse ball and I lie on it, um, to kind of, uh, awaken the pressure points right around the hips behind my body, the glutes, the hips, even a little bit of the lower back. And then I go on the front and I'll lie on the lacrosse balls, putting one on each side, right? I mean, maybe maybe one ball with, and I'm talking cross balls from my hip bone and that band in there, whatever that is, that's tight. It's almost like a, it loosens like a rubber band up there. And it's, it's really, it really relieves everything from my hips, specifically my knees. And that's where my, my next question is. So is that's kind of what you're talking about with pressure points, hitting those, um, rather than stretching, you know, I could do <laughs> yeah, stretches. Rather rather
1: rather than the old static stretch. That's the, the again, that you, you could go, you could set your clock by it every time. If you had the opportunity to talk to someone that has a hamstring issue, they're always telling you they stretch their hamstrings, the back issue. They're always telling you they stretch their back. Well, at some point, obviously that's not doing the job. So yes, your approach is correct. And then there's times where I've been super tight. So I mentioned earlier, I I mentioned the iliacus, which is inside kind of sits inside your hip hip that hip bone there that you could feel right along your waistline. Uh, it sits kind of to the inside, not to the outside of it, right? And if you can imagine a, a, a cupcake tin, that's the bone, right? Your The cupcake tin is the bone. And then the iliacus is the muscle that would be like when you put a cupcake sleeve in that tin so that you put the batter in to make the cupcake. That's what that muscle is like. And it sits in that... That muscle, and there's no way you could stretch it from end to end because there's no movement that could do that because of the way it sits. That's the classic muscle that you need to apply pressure to. And when I do that to people, I'll have them put their thumbs there and they jump because it's so tight. No muscle should ever be that tight that it results in that response when you apply pressure to it. So that itself is holding back because if that's tight, it's affecting the psoas, which comes down right across. Uh, I'm sorry, right next to it, and those two muscles are going to make your back tight if they are tight. So yeah.
0: that's my that's my area right there. You hit it on the head. So now I got two new SAT words I can add to my training. If you, but I, if
1: you if you look at that, a great stretch I have for you, and it's it's like kind of almost like a crazy f- mobility circus act. But if you're on your back and you have the field hockey ball on that spot you're sitting on it on that spot in your glute i have what's called the theracane which is a great device it's inexpensive it's about 22 23 bucks on amazon it looks like a big uh, a j right it's a j-shaped and it has uh nubs on the uh top of the J and the curved bottom of the J at the end. And it has some branches sticking off of it with also little nubs of different sizes that you can use to get into spots like say your upper back. You can hold it from the straight side and the curve allows you to get into your upper back. But I also also use it in my iliacus where I'm on my back with the field hockey ball to the glute and you could apply pressure to your iliacus. It's amazing you'll feel your entire hip area, relax, release from that.
0: I saw that device on Shark Tank, actually. I'm not sure if it's the same exact one, but something like it. Yeah. Um, that a, a nurse and her daughter created. But um, what, I've kept you for 50. I did have one more question. You got time for one more? Sure. Yeah. So knees, you know, when I do that work on my hips and, and on the, when I roll the ball on my foot, my hammies feel good my calves and Achilles feel good. And then so do my knees. So everything in between feels really good. I do mobility exercise to train my knees off plane and to train them to bend deep, um, see a lot more knee injuries nowadays. And maybe when we were younger, <clears throat> I think a lot of us do it static lifting. I like the cutting you were talking about. I think that helps out as well. But in terms of training your knees off plane, that was a, that was a thing we were told never to do back in the eighties and nineties. Um, don't bend your knee past the front of your toe. Um, don't bend them, you know, knock knee together when you're, you're, you're working your legs out. Um, what, what are your thoughts on knees? How do, how do people keep healthy knees?
1: Knee over toe is one of the patterns that you're always doing in sport. So, again, the problem wasn't training knee over toe. The problem was overloading the body with, say, a squat. And you don't want knee over toe because you're just carrying this load in a spot that you never carry a load and then move your leg in a way that doesn't really correlate with any activity. So you're you're actually training yourself to move in a way that's detrimental. So I do a ton of knee over toe. I do a ton of heel up, deep squat, body weight stuff, single leg squat, double leg squat. Um, because what happens is that heel foot flat position when you're, you're squatting all the time, that's called dorsiflexion, you, you never get plantar flexion, which is uh, getting your heel up and pushing your ball, your foot into the ground and being able to maintain that posture, that position of your foot when you're doing things. So I spend a lot of time training the foot and ankle. So knee over toe, you need to go knee over toe. Think of a kid running down the court chasing a loose ball, picking it up, and then going in for a layup. He's knee-over-toe. A lacrosse player who is bending down to pick up a ground ball, running at full speed, you're knee-over-toe. You know, football, it happens all the time. So the problem is you're not trained knee-over-toe. The the Letting your knees buckle inward is not a good idea because, again, the the structure isn't there to support that, especially with with heavy weight. I think you make the case, just like any – uh, just like any movement, if it's trained without loading and in a way that's responsible, a certain amount of that might be possible. But that's only in extreme circumstances. I wouldn't think, you know, I is it's, it's it's as important as doing other things. We've talked about this. Um, the ACL tear occurs when your foot is planted and you're turning in the opposite direction. Your body weight is away. Your base is is to the say your left foot is planting and you're turning to the right to make a 45 degree cut, I think that's one of the things we don't train enough in a variety of circumstances. You can't just wait to go out on the field and allow that to happen. You have to come up with strategies in the training area where you're doing that. And the more you can do that, um, the better chance you're giving your body of uh, of being able to accommodate that movement. And so I'm going to leave you with the the thing we're going to talk about next week is the hip lock. The hip lock comes from, well, no, the hip lock is an important part of all of this we just talked about. And um, I have posted that on my Instagram site, but we'll talk about that, how the hip lock, both moving forward, both lateral and rotationally, like I mentioned, planting your foot and rotating away. The hip lock is one of the most important things that an athlete needs to be good at. And when we don't see enough of that.
0: Does your beer and steer, does that beer and steer workout? Does that uh, deal with that as well? Or is that. Yeah, something-
1: it does, but if you don't have a good hip lock, you won't be good at it. So it kind of is where something that you're doing in your training is going to trans, translate, transfer to the field.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, bat. one last thing before we go, I know we're getting up close to an hour the knock knee, I do a knock knee squat, just my body. Um, I'll do it once a week. Usually, you know, I'm good five sets of five reps just to get my body used to doing that. Um, you were talking about don't load on that, correct? That's a vulnerable spot.
1: I, yeah, I don't think any of those you need to load. I think the if you say if you were to load, Dave, a lightweight vest at some point, but that would be. It's so difficult to master those things that you're going you're gonna to get more than enough, especially once you become a recreational athlete, you'll get more than enough benefit just being able to perform that in any way that you can. You know, it's just like the there's the stretch where uh, another another move I like to do is the stretch where you put your feet, you sit back on your feet. So your shins are on the mat, your feet are under you, your butt are, butt's down on your feet and you lean back. That's that's another great way to train your ankles, the range of motion of your ankles and knees, uh, and you don't need to load that to get the benefit. And your
0: low back, your yeah, low back. I've been doing much more body weight with the, with the knees uh, and the ankles and the feet since we started uh, doing the show together. So appreciate your positive input on my post fifty year old athletic careers. I wish I knew you when I was younger. Maybe I would have extended my uh, my professional playing career.
1: Yeah. What well, can I, I wish I did too. Maybe we could get a time machine someday.
0: <laughs> next show. We'll call that. We, Dave, got one. we
1: wouldn't be here, Dave. We wouldn't be here because you would be a big star in the major leagues and you wouldn't need me.
0: Oh, I always need you, buddy. Always need you. So we got, uh, we're going to talk about hip lock next week. Hope yes. our audience enjoyed uh, the conversation today. We, we started with something we weren't expecting to, Bronnie James, a little uh, distal loading conversation and some conversation to get into proximal loading and then. The pressure point stuff I love. I'm a firm believer in that stuff now, so um, I appreciate what you do, Sal. Hot corner with coach, Sal. Where can our audience find you and support you?
1: The best way, just as on Instagram, I've kind of taken a hiatus this summer. A little travel, a little recharging my batteries. Um, you know what, Dave? Here's another thing for next week because I was going to my first post on Instagram was going to be about taking time off and the best way to take time off from your workout. And I think it, it can hold true for other activities, but put the note down with our hip lock discussion. We're going to talk about the best time, the best way to take off from uh, some
0: time off from your workout. Yeah. I've actually done that this past month as well. Um, took a little breather from it and um, just kind of let my body settle, body mind settle a little bit, not total. It's not like I'm just lying flat on a bed, but um you know, not doing the normal stuff. It makes you fresh, makes you a little fresh, let your body recover. So, well, Sal, thanks so much. Episode 231, the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. We're here on Real Voices of the Game, uh, slowly approaching that 21,000 mark right now with subscribers. We'll get Spotify numbers later today or tomorrow and should double in total. We appreciate you. It's 72 countries loyal to us, grassroots MLB front offices. And of course, we appreciate the support with this particular show, the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. A lot of, uh, a lot of crazy fanatic followers with you, Sal. I don't know what that says about your your, uh, your personality, but uh, you got some Sal groupies. That oh, well, well, that's
1: good to know. Uh, yep, yeah, that's good to know. Good I group. guess.
0: <laughs> well, we'll keep we'll keep your address and phone number off of the sites, but uh, yeah. certainly they can follow you in on Instagram and, and engage you there. And we certainly appreciate your hair. But thanks so much. And with that, episode two thirty one in the books, Sal. Have a great rest of the day. Yep, have a good week, everybody.